So in 2019, we finally hit the million dollar mark. It was like a big deal for us. I don't think I realized like what it meant at the time. That's the voice of Josh Scheutzo, owner of A Carpenter's Son. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Josh Scheutzo, owner of the Columbus, Ohio-based furniture company, A Carpenter's Son. Josh has grown his business from an Etsy shop selling cutting boards to a furniture company with over $1.5 million a year in sales, 11 employees, and a long list of impressive clients. And he has done this all by not losing his perspective on, yes, his business as a whole, but also on the parts that make up that whole, his employees, his customers, his impact on the community, and the impact of the business on himself. Follow along as we talk about understanding the value of your employees, pricing for larger jobs, learning how to be a better boss, and much more. Josh shared so much helpful advice in this episode, so let's jump right in and hear about his journey in his own words. I'm a fourth generation carpenter, I guess you could say. Uh, My dad, my grandfather, great-grandfather, they all worked with wood in some capacity. Uh, whether it was remodeling or house framing or, you know, building uh, small furniture goods. My grandfather had a line of um, wooden step stools that he built to, uh, to sell through Sears Roebuck, I believe. And he used that income from selling these wooden foot stools to uh, help fund some of his um, endeavors. And he, uh, he was an engineer and inventor of a rotor-driven helicopter. And so craftsmanship has always been in my family, but uh, more so, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a small business owner uh, has always been in my uh, family tree in, in one way or another. Uh, so I grew up, uh, my dad was a carpenter. He was a master trim carpenter. We had an old 1800s farmhouse. And so we were constantly working on the house, fixing it up. And um, so I got to do, uh, I got to do and see a lot of things happen right in front of my eyes. Uh, I was working with my dad. As I got older, I worked at a plant farm when I was, you know, in middle school and high school and uh, drove tractors and, and worked in construction type capacity. And uh, as I was older, I worked with my dad uh, doing remodeling and building decks and and putting roofs on and all that kind of stuff. You can make a lot of money working with your hands. You know? I think that's uh, something people are realizing is, uh, is there's a lot of money to be made in the, out in the trades. So, so anyway, uh, in college, I painted houses and I did roofing with my roommates and all of that type of stuff just to, to make extra money. But um, I ended up going into the construction trades uh, as a cost engineer. And so I worked as an estimator, uh, worked in business development, worked in project planning. Um, and my wife and I got married really young. We were 20 years old when we got married. And you know, that's our 15th anniversary uh, coming up this spring. I was working construction jobs and uh, had, you know, some, some houses that we had uh, lived in when we first got married. And, and so we were always fixing up stuff and building our own things and just trying to make the best of what we could, uh, what we had available. I distinctly remember, um, 
you know, building fence in my backyard and, and working on uh, pallet wood furniture, cutting boards and stuff like that. So I had a really meaningful and great full-time career for a construction company. Then uh, we, we just started getting into some, uh, some really chaotic situations in our family. We, have, uh, we currently have four boys, uh, ages 5 to 12. And uh, our second son, um, right after he was born, a few months down the road, he got really sick. And, uh, and he, almost, he almost died like six or seven times. And miraculously, through the grace of God, he's, uh, he made a, a full recovery. But, uh, I mean, we were in the hospital for months. I mean, well over a million dollars in medical bills. Just some, just some wild situations. And so... Uh, through that, I remember uh, sleepless nights, like even when he was in the hospital and um, I would go home. It wasn't far. So I would go home to sleep and wouldn't be able to sleep. And I'd go out in the garage and and mess around with something and and take apart a pallet and try, you know, build something with it. And it was just as like a form of of, uh, you know, self-care and taking care of myself and, um, you know, trying to take my mind off what was what was going on. And um you know, I'm thankful my, my son has survived and, and we were able to um, kind of come through that season, um, you know, really surrounded by community and, um, you know, with a kind of a, a new, newfound appreciation for, uh, for life and our family. And uh, my wife and I wanted to have more kids, but then uh, we were having trouble getting pregnant again. And uh, kind of the devastating effect that adrenaline and, and trauma can have, like walking through those situations and running on adrenaline for months and months and months, uh, can really mess with your, mess with your body, mess with your mind. And, and so we were just found out, you know, after a year or two of trying, we're like, we're just not able to get pregnant. So, um, tying this all back together, we, we then decided to look into adoption and uh, had some friends in our church that were adopting, and, and um, there's a huge need for um, foster care families and, and adoptive families, and um, and so we decided to look into that. And there was a great organization here in Columbus called Choice Network, and they uh, they paired us up with our son's birth mom and. Um, part of the domestic adoption process. He was born right here in Columbus. Um, and so we had to uh, come up with some pretty substantial money for uh, legal fees, adoption agency fees, medical fees, like all, all that type of stuff. Um, somewhere at, the average is, you know, between 15 and $30,000. Um, as we were, you know, kind of young, you know, mid twenties, young parents, we didn't, we didn't have $30,000, uh, to, to spend and we were going to take out a loan and, uh, and do that. And so we kind of had this idea to start selling, uh, some cutting boards to offset the cost of the adoption. And, um, I'd heard about Etsy and I was like, yeah, maybe we could sell some little, I like, I had a little garage, uh, with a couple tools from Harbor Freight and, so we started an Etsy account and called it a Carpenter's Son, and we named the Etsy page that, and we stood up a Instagram account and uh, started taking pictures and, and talking about the stuff we were building. And that's kind of like how it started, you know? It was 2015. Okay, so it's 2015, and you decide to start your Etsy store, and you have a good backstory. You have a good reason to do it, but your skills weren't really all that developed. Yes, you were working manual jobs growing up and working with your hands and you had some experience working with your father, but but this kind of stuff, home goods and things along those lines, you'd only been doing that for a little bit. So how did your your business work? Because this is the start of your business and I have to imagine it did it did well or else you probably wouldn't have kept at it. We really shortly after that, uh, our son was born and um, people kind of got excited about what we were doing. You know, it's a cause that any, anybody can get behind, right? Uh, you see someone working towards a goal, uh, whatever it is, 
And so uh, through Instagram, people were, we, people were ordering our, our cutting boards. Our cutting boards weren't even that great. I had no idea what I was doing. We called them actually serving boards because, um, you know, I wasn't totally sure they would hold up to uh, everyday chopping and cutting, you know. And so we were making these serving boards, you know, charcuterie boards, stuff like that. People were, uh, were ordering them and supporting us. And a friend of ours who has a screen printing company was printing us t-shirts um, and we were selling those. And so very quickly, in a matter of a, a few months, we had sold $30,000 worth of uh, product. We put all that money towards our adoption and then people just kept ordering stuff and kept on ordering stuff. And so uh, we had this brand new baby at home and we, I was really enjoying it because I had this, this I don't know, some would call it a, a bug. Other people would call it a curse, but some, some sort of entrepreneur's uh, you know lean that runs through my veins. And so that thrill of like, you know, working for yourself was kind of catching on and um, we just decided to keep going. You had some success and you reached your goal, but there's a big difference between raising money for a cause that people can get behind and having a business that people seek you out to build things for them. There's a there's a difference to that. One is people helping, but the other is an actual business. So how did you take it from that Etsy store, that first concept idea, and actually move it forward into a legitimate business? You know, kind of figured it out along the way. 2016, a good friend of mine, Jake, was, was working with me, helping me do all this. And um, every single evening, every single weekend, we would just... We'd go to my garage or we would go to my boss's shop and we just build stuff. And people would say, can you make us a coffee table? And can you make us a, a nightstand or whatever it was? These little things that were very crude and just be like, yes, we absolutely can. You know, thank God for YouTube and uh, people around us. We had some really, thankfully, some talented people that really knew what they were doing, that we could ask for help. There was a guy, Jonathan Jackson, who's one of the most talented carpenters, cabinet builders, uh, taught me how to run a joiner and how to run a planer and like some stuff like that, that, that really like kind of got my, my blood circulating in regards to woodworking. So we were trying to get better at that. And um, there were then some like bigger opportunities that came working with organizations that, you know, kind of started following us on Instagram and our, and our story continued to spread and, and we were selling pretty much everything through Instagram and through friends and family and through, through referrals. People were really uh, tuned into our story. So then at the end of 2016, Jake, who is a brilliant business development guy in construction, he got offered this great job down in Cincinnati and, and he took off. And we had this little business that was, um, you know, we were working part time towards and we thought it could maybe grow, but we weren't sure. And so uh, Jake left and, and uh, I talked to my wife and I was like, hey, this could, this could really be something, you know. And, um, you know, there, we, had, we had adopted our third son and then almost uh, the next, next spring or the next summer, she got pregnant with our fourth son, you know. Uh, after all these years, we ended up getting pregnant again, which was uh, a miracle and we we're so thankful for. So we have four boys now. And, uh, and through that time, I said, hey, like Car Carpenter's son is, is uh, I'm really enjoying it. And, um, but I'm also working a ton of hours at a full time job in construction, a young, a young baby at home. My wife is pregnant, I'm trying to woodwork in the evenings, trying to do deliveries on the weekends. You know, it was all consuming. And so my wife said, you know, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a year to figure this out. And, you know, at the end of that time, uh, either shut it down and, and we just go back to being a family or uh, you quit your job and do Carpenter's Son full-time. Uh, after a few months, I quit my full-time job. Um, and so through that... Uh, through that whole evolution, this was early, early 2017, kind of left the safety net of 
full-time employment and health insurance and, and, uh, and made Carpenter's son, a uh, a real kind of full-time focus for me. You have the craft in your blood, the woodworking craft, and you also have the entrepreneurial aspect of running a business in your blood through all the generations in your family. And I can imagine that in your mind, you were being pushed in that direction a little bit, but at the same time, you've seen how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. You were just talking about your start and how you got the business going. And I know that there's a lot more to talk about it from where you left off to where you are now, but I want to ask you, what were your thoughts going in? You were doing it part-time and part-time is a lot different than full-time because you don't have all the responsibilities when you're going part-time to be able to provide for yourself. When you did decide to go full-time, did you have any of that in your mind of your family and the generations before you of how hard it was? and how hard it is to be an entrepreneur and to work for yourself? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's there's no like getting around the fact that all of those things that come with working for yourself are terrifying. And then you throw like three or four kids and a mortgage into it. And it's just like that, that experience amps itself up so much more. Um, and so I don't know if I like went into it with a lot of like great strategy and understanding of what I was doing as, as far as like the business back end of it. But I knew that like, if I didn't do it, I would spend the rest of my life like very happy and content, but I would always like have that like bug in my ear of like, what, what could have been or what would have happened, you know, and I was having so much fun in the like the community aspect of, of what we do. Every single person that we've interacted with from like a client basis to vendors to uh, designers towards like the just the normal folks on Instagram that support us either by buying something of ours or just cheering us on and sharing our story that whole aspect of it has been so rewarding and meaningful to me um, that it, it, that really drove me in a, in a, um, in a motivational way uh, to where I was like, yeah, I'm just going to freaking make this work out, you know? And if it doesn't, at least I know that I've tried all that to say from, you know, 2016 to 2018, we were just trying to grow I had this number in my head of like, Hey, I've got to build whatever seven I have to sell and build seven tables a month. And that will pay for our mortgage and our, you know, groceries and stuff like that. Um, and we kind of followed that progression that uh, you see a lot of like these solo uh, woodworker shops, right? We're working out of my garage and then, um, you know, we like, borrowed space from a friend and then we shared a shop with somebody else and so we had like two or three or four uh iterations of like where we were working you know and and each each job we we're like yeah let's you know let's try and uh buy a nicer this or a nicer that and uh and just make it work and so it kind of led us into uh this dream um of like having a backyard shop and so in 2018, my family moved up to a, uh, a, a piece of property up in northern, northern Columbus, and we were going to fix up this old farmhouse, and we were going to build a 2,500-square-foot shop uh, in my backyard. And, like that, and I think it, in that moment, I was like, I think that's the dream. You know, I'm just going to walk out my backyard and go to work, you know, and I'm going to build cool stuff, and I'm going to... Uh, pay for our mortgage and I'm have a, a friend or two work for me. And that's exactly what we did. That's what, what happened. So uh, we built this cool shop in our backyard. And so we had a, we, we kind of, those were like what we call like the, the glory years, you know, where we were just like having fun and we lived right on a state park and we went kayaking all the time. And, um, you know, we had friends that, uh, that, that were working for us 
we did a lot of residential and but we also did a lot of commercial and so we were you know building simple community tables and conference tables and whatever it was we were just whatever people asked for is is, is what we built um and so through that time we kind of like increased our experience we increased our portfolio um, people just kept seeing the work that we were doing they were following along with this process and this dream of like hey i'm going to turn this into a full-time gig and and actually we're going to uh, you know, work for these uh, cool companies here in Columbus and, and we're going to start like uh, the new restaurant down the street. We're going to build the tables for that. And so there was a lot of like exciting momentum that came with that. But at the same time, and I can't say this clearly enough, we still had no idea what we were doing. And so we're trying to learn all those skills along the way uh, from production to operations to at the same time, like how do we pay our taxes? How do we um, you know, get a line of credit, like all the things that came into like running a business at a slightly higher level, you know, th those, those were all like big questions that we just had to figure out. And, um, I'm really thankful again for the community that was around us. We had, there's a, an absolute treasure trove of small businesses that are here in central Ohio and beyond. And through the, um, the beauty of Instagram, I was able to connect with people that had either gone before me that were doing it, that were doing it bigger and better and that I could, uh, they were graciously allowed me to ask questions along the way, as well as just resources that people say, Hey, you should, you should talk to this accountant or you should talk to this, um, you know, photographer, like they, they'll be able to help you. And so through that process, we were just, we've been able, we, we were able to grow in my backyard and, um, so in 2019, we finally hit the million dollar mark in, in furniture sales, which is like a, it was like a big deal for us. I don't think I realized like what it meant at the time, but I think around that time, I started to realize that what we were building uh, as a business and as a brand uh, was bigger than just me and my family and the dreams that we had. And so as we went into 2020, we, we decided to double the size of our team. And so we went from three people to six people. Those three people started on March 3rd, 2020. And then on March 20th, like literally two and a half, three weeks later, uh, the state of Ohio shut down all non-essential businesses. And so we had sent everybody home and, and we paid out a month of payroll for everybody so they could try and collect that the federal unemployment and, and it was, it was a extremely tough year, but during that period um, we had still been given opportunities to grow and 2020 was like one of our biggest years yet uh, at the time. And so we had uh, more opportunities from uh, clients that had been growing as well. So uh, specifically there was a, a co-working group called Cohatch they uh, were community space. They renovate these old, cool, historic buildings and then make community spaces, co-working spaces. They usually have a restaurant or some sort of food or beverage uh, group tied to it. So they were doing, you know, one location, three locations. Um, and they got up to 13. And when we were their furniture partner for all 13 of those locations, now they're like over 20 locations and they just announced 70 more. And uh, we're going to, uh, you know, Florida and Pittsburgh and Indiana and, and all over the place, these different markets with Cohatch. Um, and, and we've been a partner of theirs. They've been a wonderful partner of ours. And so to be able to grow alongside a group like that has been just monumental for us because, um, you know, the, the work that we do for them is, is um I won't say it's easy because it's not. It requires a lot of effort and a lot of logistics and a lot of work, but um, it's a lot of repeatable f pieces. And so uh, conference tables, community tables, desks, like those types of things that they're using in a variety of species, white oak and walnut and ash and all that type of stuff in different locations. And so um, that type of volume really helped us as we were growing um, and gave us the kind of confidence that we needed to be able to take on uh, bigger jobs along the way. 
uh, in 2020, uh, you know, we, we went from a, a million dollars in sales to $1.5 million in sales, um, like a 50% growth, which blew my mind because it was, it was a hard year and we were trying to navigate the uh, pandemic and what we could and couldn't do and how do we take care of our people and all that type of stuff. So at the end of uh, 2020, going into 2021, our, our team continued to grow. And so we had, you know, somewhere around eight, eight or nine folks at the, at the end of that, uh, of 2021. At this point in your company, you're working hard, you're making things happen and you're catching some lucky breaks. You're getting the right connections at the right time and you're scaling and you're going from a, a small one to two-person business, to a multi-employee company, to eight or nine and and still growing. And that's kind of at a tipping point because you're no longer just a small business owner who's making furniture. You're a manager. You are running a business and the, the business part is taking over what you're doing. How are you keeping this company together not together in the sense of of making sure it doesn't fall apart financially but together as in you're growing fast and you want to make sure it's still the type of company that you want to be a part of that you want to put your name on going into 2021 our team was growing and uh we had the idea that we could build a really high quality product but um at the same time community was still like our focus uh and then i kind of say that like community is where we started and then like the craftsmanship came after that um because what we've been able to do in growing is we've been able to bring people on the team and afford them an opportunity to build uh, really cool furniture at a high quality. And those people uh, are way better than me at building furniture, you know? And so our quality continued to improve. And then um, the structure and the systems of our business continued to improve. Uh, we were really uh, fortunate just to be able to bring a really great mix of people um, onto the team that believed in what we were doing and was able to, to kind of come behind me in this goal of building custom furniture that's centered around community. And so uh, one guy in particular um, I'll mention is our operations director, Craig. Uh, he joined us a couple years ago and, and runs our daily operations. So everything from production to scheduling, to uh, managing the guys and stuff like that. And so even bringing on like a really high impact person onto the team uh, made a huge difference in, in kind of the direction we were heading and what I was able to personally do as uh, the owner and visionary and the, you know, the kind of the person who has started this whole mess. And so you're surrounding yourself with great people, which is a great way to to build your business because if you have a core group of people that you can rely on, then when the work comes, you can know that it's going to get done to the degree that you need it done. But the work still has to come. You still have to get those those big projects. And as your team gets bigger, you have to bring in bigger and bigger projects. So at this point, what kind of projects are you taking on to be able to sustain that many people working for you? I'll just tell a brief story. We had done a couple tables for this one design firm that we love dearly called Tenfold. They had recommended us to another design firm who was building a brand new soccer stadium here in Columbus. Uh, we have a soccer team, Columbus Crew. And so this design team uh, was out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the owner's rep 
interior designers are in Nashville, Tennessee, the purchasers in Seattle, Washington, and they call and they say, Hey, we heard you, you are the guys to use, uh, to build the furniture for this soccer stadium, which was kind of a, a, a great and a terrifying phone call to get because we know that there are other companies and competitors and, and, and bigger, bigger groups that are, are way more qualified for this type of project. Uh, but thankfully I just kept my mouth shut and I just said, yeah, we'd love to help, you know? And so, uh, we end up landing this project for, uh, the Columbus crew. I think it was like a, I don't know, a $350,000 contract to build a few hundred different pieces of furniture, like tables and, and bar tops and coffee tables and uh, restaurant spaces and reception or like hostess stands and stuff like that. It was a massive project that we were not um, set up to handle, right? We're in a 2,500 square foot shop in my backyard, but the timeline was great. We had good resources. We, our team was growing and we, we you know, we knew that we could do it. Um, and so we start renting storage unit after storage unit. And, uh, you know, with like all construction projects, it got delayed a little bit, which worked out in our favor. And so somehow we, we pulled off this project, delivered the final pieces on a Friday, and the first game was on a Saturday, you know. Uh, going through a big, scary project like that um, it really opened our eyes to kind of like the value that we can bring to, our, to a client. And then also like what our team was capable of, uh, as well as like, what are all the, the weak links and what we're trying to do? So um, I have a feeling that I know where this is going and you've you're you're outgrowing your space. You need to continue to grow and to expand because your 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 team is getting bigger. Your projects are getting bigger, but I think you're probably still at this point in your backyard shop is that is that right when, when we we got through that project we realized and i think everybody realized it before i did but we i came to the conclusion like hey we we shouldn't be working in my backyard anymore we need a bigger space um we need to be able to give these really talented people the tools and the resources and the space to be able to do their best work. And that best work isn't in my backyard. And so I had to kind of give up my uh, personal uh, dream of, of walking out in the backyard and having a 10 second commute uh, for the good of this team that I, that I had put together that, you know, I put this vision uh, out in, f in front of everyone and, and they were helping me build this. And so, um, in 2021, uh, kind of halfway through the year, we, we moved, we moved our entire operation, uh, back down to Columbus, kind of where we started and, uh, got a 10,000 square foot shop, um, which is where we currently work. You went from $30,000 in cutting boards and pallet furniture to over a million and a half dollars and doing giant corporate projects and soccer stadiums and big projects like that. And you talked in the beginning about how exciting it was, how when you started the company, it was exciting and you loved going out into the community and, and talking to clients and and that aspect of the business. And that's something that a lot of people feel when they start a new company. They're excited about building furniture. They're excited about doing the next project. They're excited about the next client. You as the manager of this, as the person who's running the ship, you've been there before. After the first couple of years, it's not like you were saying, I'm very excited about this next table. You've built a couple hundred tables, sometimes even just for one project. There's a, a feeling that some people get when they're running a company where the excitement is lost, the, the drive, the desire of being an entrepreneur and everything brand new fades away and it just becomes 
a business and people can get jaded about that and they can get a little bit frustrated just like they would at a normal job. You seem to still love what you're doing. So how have you been keeping that that going, that love for your company going all these years? Man, that's a great question. And uh, and no, it's not it's not easy. I don't carry uh, just an insane level of stoke every single day. Um, however, it's one of like our core values uh, as a team is to be optimistic. And so we just kind of said this is a non-negotiable that negativity has no place in our organization and that like our greatest strength is in solving problems as a team because God, there's so many problems, right? I mean, everything you could think of, um, there's problems. And so encouraging, uh, encouraging our team members, our, our team members encouraging us, like just having the right environment um, and having the right people in place and being able to clearly communicate like why it is we're doing what we do um, I think provides long-term uh, clarity when it comes towards working towards a goal and a vision. And so we talk a lot about like the mission and the vision of like the mission's who we are and the vision is where we're going. But the number one thing is like, oh, what's our, what's our values? Like, who are we, who are we as people? And so uh, I'll go back to it because it is community is everything. And it's the people that you bring around you um, that spur you on to, to, to do your best work. Right. Uh, I've been really fortunate in, in the community that I have with our team members, with the people that, that call Carpenter's son home. And then also with uh, our surrounding community with other furniture shops and small businesses, um, I feel really fortunate that, uh, that I have a great, I, I feel like I've got great people on our team. The way you talk about running your business, it brings up another point that I wanted to address. And it's, it's something that I think about and I talk to a lot of people about. And it's also something that you brought up about how you have skilled people on the team that are better furniture makers than you are. People from the outside think that if you have a successful furniture company, then you have to be the best furniture maker out there. You have to be able to make furniture better than everybody else. And that's where you succeed. But the reality of the situation is that there are a lot of great furniture makers out there that are better than the people who are running the furniture company. And this is something that I've said a lot, but I will keep saying it, that being a furniture maker is one thing, but being a furniture business, you have to have both sides, the furniture side, the building and the making of the furniture, but also the business side and the running of the business. And when you talk about running your business, you talk about it as a whole. You talk about not only the, the skills involved in physically building something, the product, but also the skills involved in the business side. And managing people and running a business isn't something that you knew how to do. You learned how to do it over the years. Where did that, where did that come from? How did you learn how to do that as your, your shop grew from being in your backyard and having a couple friends helping you out to now running a, a very successful business with important clients and producing a lot of work with a lot of employees? Where did that, that come from? And how did you grow into that business-minded person? Uh, I think that there's a large part of me that... Um, you know, just wanted to like, I, I'd worked in enough jobs that had poor management. And so I was able to experience the frustrations of like working for uh, a boss who was not clear on our vision. I had enough experiences working for a boss who was verbally abusive to his team. Like, 
so I had those experiences in mind and I still think about them every day as I'm trying as as trying to make decisions and and working with our operations director Craig to to come up with uh, and in like ways and policies and, and ways that we can make this a really positive place for people to work. And we want people to, to stay for years, you know? And I think it's like, it comes down, I think at a core level to just caring about the people in front of you and whether that's like your, your client or your team members or um, your family, like, being able to genuinely care about what's in front of you makes a big difference because at the end of the day, it's like, these are the people we have to, we, that we've chosen to, you know, do life together and, and to build these things together. I, I don't think it's, it's the, the business side of thing is, is important. And the only way I've learned it is through trial and error and making mistakes but I think that the um, the biggest thing that that I can say is that um, we care deeply about about people, about our team members, about our clients, and we really want um, our people to feel fulfilled and supported in their careers. And it's really meaningful to me. This show is about furniture, but at its heart, it is. A business show and I always want to talk to people about how they're running their business and a big part of running their business is how they price their furniture because that is the the go-between between building furniture and making money building furniture let's talk about how you price out furniture and the steps you take yeah sure so we are largely commercial. We're probably about 80% commercial and 20% residential. Um, as you hit the hit nail on the head, in pricing residential, you know, we get a lot of inquiries for dining tables, coffee tables, um, you know, vanities, stuff like that. And so I have a really good sense of where, um, where our pricing is on an individual piece. And so someone says, hey, I'm interested in this, this type of dining table. I'm able to, to take 30 seconds and look at that and respond to their submission form and say, hey, what you're describing could be between four and $6,000. Uh, if that budget sounds good, we'd love to talk about design, you know. And that, uh, that helps weed out people that um, either don't have um, a budget for what we can provide um, or if they're just price shopping, you know, and that, you know, that kind of experience and that, that response only takes me a few seconds. How do you get to that number? Because I know people are listening and they're thinking it's great that he has all this experience and he can jump to that number in 30 seconds, but how are you actually doing that math in your head? What's the, what's the, calculations that you're making to get to that number it was always kind of a guessing game based on the market and so i would look at what people were willing to pay right because the value of anything is is what um what someone is willing to spend on it and so i would do a lot of research and and talk to competitors and you know look at um look at Etsy listings and, and see, okay, you know, a live edge coffee table is going for X. And then you think about it on a personal side of like, okay, what is my, you know, what does it take for me to build this coffee table? It's like, all right, I've got a, you know, $500 in material and then have to pay a fabricator to make a steel base. And then it's going to take me, I don't know. I hope it'll take me 20 hours to build this piece. You know, and so you kind of look at it in that way, and that is exactly what we do now, especially on more intricate builds, is we have a spreadsheet that we can plug in all of our material costs, and we can plug in estimated hours, you know, and it calculates out our true cost, and then we have, um, you know, a plug for overhead, you know, whatever that is. And then that spits out a number and then you can pick, you know, 
anywhere from 20 to 40% margin that you want to make on it. And that gives you a total number. And you can look at that number and say, all right, this person will probably not be able to pay this budget. Or you can look at that number and say, okay, uh, it, this bathroom vanity is, is pr- pr- my worksheet is pricing out at $5,500. But I know that this vanity, that people will pay $6,000 for this. And so you can comfortably work in those ranges to try and develop you know, a pricing structure that fits best for your overhead. And that is the key is finding like, you know, where do I, what are, what's, what is number one, what isn't someone willing to pay? And then number two, can I afford to build it for that? And then number three, you know, can you get the reputation and the experience to be able to price things accordingly to where that break even number becomes less important and you've got the value like you can provide the value to your client and confidently say like this $5,500 vanity is worth $6,000 to this builder. Now that is the, the pricing structure for the smaller pieces, the one-off pieces, but I'm sure you have a different structure for doing larger 10, 20, 30, a hundred piece projects. How do you go about pricing something like that out? I have to imagine you don't look at a sheet and 30 seconds later, you send an email back to the client saying, this will be X amount of dollars. There has to be a little bit more going into that because not only is it more money, but it's more time and more materials and more overall labor of your company. So for the bigger commercial projects, how are you going about pricing those? That's a great question. Um, We essentially will look at a package, um, whether it's for a hotel or a restaurant, and, and break it out into essentially chunks of hours. And so, yes, you can build one table uh, in X amount of hours, but if you're building four of them, there's efficiencies gained in cutting all the pieces at the same time and assembling them all at the same time. You can do steps while you're waiting for glue to dry. And so being able to figure out like how to price the job, essentially you need to know what your burn rate is on a daily basis. And so um, essentially I know that we can um, provide for our team um, at a certain rate per month or per week, you know, you can split it into whatever it is. And then, uh, since we have a shop manager and we have an operations director, I'm able to sit down with those guys and say, all right, if we have to build this desk, I know it's going to take 40 hours, but if we have to build 10 of these desks, what is the efficiency that's picked up? Because it's not 400 hours. It's not, you know, 40 hours times 10 desks you know, we can find out that it's actually to build 10 of these desks and instead of in 40 hours, we can build 10 of them in, you know, 250 hours. And then you split that into, all right, we've got, got two guys working for three days on this step. And then we've got three days of sanding work. And then we've got a day of finish work and whatever it is. Uh, trying to think through it holistically uh, is difficult when you're in the pricing phase. And so being able to kind of like generally... Uh, estimate hours and put all the material together and still figure out a decent margin. Um, I mean, that is, that is the, the, one of the hardest parts about the entire gig is, is trying to price things in a way where your business can not only keep the lights on and pay for all your overhead and your payroll, but also make that profit that keeps you, keeps you going. When you're doing these big commercial projects what type of warranty for your furniture do you have because again going back to residential you're dropping off a dining room table you know the client you know that the client and maybe their family and maybe their friends are going to be using this table and you can 
have an idea of the type of damage it's going to get. But when you send a piece of furniture to a hotel or a stadium or a restaurant or an office building, you have no idea type of damage it's going to get. So you have to be able to cover yourself in a way that you're not going to build this, send it, and then have to get it back in a month because of some damage that was unforeseen. So what type of warranty do you have for your residential and for your commercial pieces? I mean, we build things to last. That's what we say. And so we warrant essentially our products to be free from any defects or damage in regards to material and workmanship. And so that essentially guarantees our clients that like, hey, if there's an issue that arises with a piece that is due to the way that we built it or the finish that we put on or something that happens, we will handle the replacement of that. If, there, if your table gets damaged because somebody carved their initials into it or someone uh, you know, put, a, you know, put a lighter underneath it or they whatever it is, those things are outside of our control. And so um, those are called uh, kind of like misuse or intentional damage. There's all this different wording that's in our actual warranty. Um, and as well as normal wear and tear. Um, you know, like the soccer stadium, there's thousands of people that go through there. And so uh, we, we can work with the stadium staff during off season uh, where they uh, had contacted us and said, hey, over the last two years, we've had a couple tables that are pretty severely scratched that someone clearly ran a pocket knife over or whatever it was. Uh, and we can schedule with them to, you know, have their facility people bring it back to our shop and we'll refinish it at a cost uh, to them because it's like that's that's not damage that we created. And so we guarantee our work to be free from defects when it, in regards to the work itself. And if there's some sort of issue with it uh, or we find, hey, there was, you know, there's a bubble in our finish or, hey, this we got a crack in this slab that we didn't see coming because uh, live edge slabs can be unpredictable. Um, we, we usually go above and beyond uh, to make it right with our clients. Now, if their kids spilled nail polish remover all over the table and it peeled off the finish, we will do everything we can to strip down that table and refinish it for you. But more times than not, people will pay us for that. These big projects that you're getting, I'm sure people listening are thinking, that's great. I'd, I'd love to also get an order for 20 pieces of repeatable furniture and to keep getting that year after year. How are you going about getting this? And I know that each individual company, each individual person has their own individual ways of doing it. And so it's not a one size fits all answer. This is how I get my corporate clients because your business is different than somebody else's, different than somebody else's. But how do you approach the idea of getting commercial projects over the years? And what has been a way that you've done it that you've seen success in? So the success that we've had with uh, larger projects uh, has been through relationships. Uh, relationships with architects and interior designers, as well as purchasers for bigger hospitality groups. Um, and those relationships come from referrals. A lot of the designers and architects and people follow us on Instagram and connect with us. And so they're, uh, they're familiar with our work. And that way, when they have an opportunity come up for an office project or a new restaurant, uh, we'll hopefully be, you know, one of the people they contact for a price or to be a resource for them. In every city in America, there's commercial furniture dealers, people that sell commercial furniture to offices and medical buildings and stuff like that. So being a resource for those bigger dealers that they're selling a hundred cubicles and 500 desk chairs, but they're going to need, they're going to be working for a bigger group. And that CEO is going to want 
an interesting conference table. And so we, that's where we come in and we provide something that's unique and, uh, and one of a kind. And so a lot of it is relationship building. It's being a resource for people. So you get that repeatable business and you get those clients that, um, that, Hey, we built this beautiful table for you in the past. And so they're going to think of you again in the future. Um, you know, as a designer or a dealer or a purchaser, um, they're just looking to provide their clients uh, the best value. And so it takes some of that legwork out of it on our end, because all we need to do is uh, provide a great customer experience and a great product, uh, because then you've got people out there selling for you. Other companies use uh, sales reps, hospitality reps, people that are out there uh, getting the jobs and finding the connections and stuff like that. And so very similar to that, it's a relational based model where we, we get to work for a lot of the, a lot of the same people over and over again. When you started in this industry, even though you had a long lineage of people in your family who had craftsmanship in what they did, you didn't start your life in the furniture business, having your own business. But over the years, you have definitely become a student of, of running a furniture business. Over the years, I'm sure you've learned a tremendous amount about how to properly and successfully run a business. And you've shared a lot of that already in this interview. But I'd like to ask you, if you have anything that you could share for people who are looking to get into this business or who are already in the business and want to bring their company to the next level, what kind of advice could you share to those people from your experience so far? I would say that there's, you know, there's that old saying, like the, the older you get, the more you realize how little you know. And so if anything that I've learned through this process is how little I know about a lot of things. And there are some things that uh, I'm good at, but realizing the things that you are not gifted at, the things that you struggle with, whether that's on the business side, if it's accounting or it's pricing or on the production side, it's, you know, maybe you struggle with you know, cabinets, but a lot of people are asking you for that. The best thing you can do is try and surround yourself and somehow get yourself to a place where you have enough revenue coming in to be able to hire people that are good at the things that you are not. And the success that I've had is, it has been, like you said, kind of stumbled upon um, but at the same time, I'm trying to keep uh, a sense of humility and knowing that I am not the most qualified in a particular area and being able to get out of my own way to, for the good of the business and for the good of the team and to further and further build the brand that we've been building. Um, and in doing that, we are... Um, hopefully putting the right people in the right positions and as the owner and the the visionary behind all this i'm able to experience more and more of the freedom and the passion of what i get to do on a daily basis rather than fighting my way through things that are difficult for me well it certainly seems like you are doing something right from an outside observer your business is incredibly successful and your growth has been something to admire. And I really do want to thank you for sharing those insights into how you got here and sharing the ideas behind the decisions you've made. So I truly do appreciate your time and you sitting down and sharing that story with me. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward wherever your business takes you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. And, and uh, I'm, I'm always uh, happy to share where we've been and, and where we're going. So I, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for listening to building a furniture brand with Ethan Abramson. 
If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Amerson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.